great high-energy session to finish with on organizing for social change in health. And to address that topic is Harry Han, who's the Anton Vonk Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and who specializes in the study of civic and political participation, collective action, social change, democratic revitalization, something America needs badly and we need too, collective action, uh, particularly as it relates to social policy and environmental issues. She's published three books uh, and her award-winning work has been published in many different places. Please welcome Harry Hand. How are you guys doing today? Um, I'm really excited to be here uh, with you all today, and what I want to talk about today is really about um, organizing for social change in health and how that works. Um, but before I get started, as you all are settling into your seats for this final session of the day, I thought that I'd start by telling you a little bit about how I got into the work that I do, right? Why is it that I study the kinds of things that I do? As Norman mentioned, I'm here from the United States. Um, I grew up actually as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Houston, Texas, which is in the southern part of the United States. I don't know if anyone's ever been there. Um, but my parents immigrated there in 1973 after um, they had got, grown up in Korea, they got married in Korea and started their careers there. But they came to the United States for my dad to go to school. And when they first came to the United States, even though they came from these really well-educated families in Korea, when they arrived in the U.S., they basically, I mean, they had no money, right? My dad was a student, and Korea was basically a developing economy at the time, so the money that they had didn't really translate well to the United States. And so my mom cleaned people's houses, my dad um, delivered Chinese fruit on the back of his bicycle, and they really tried to figure out how to make it. Um, and so a lot of what I saw growing up as a kid and as a child of immigrants in my parents' household was this idea of them trying to figure out what it meant to sort of raise a family in the United States, right? How do you sort of figure out what it is? And so um, that picture at the top is my um, dad's family came from, they were uh, refugees from North Korea. And then um, that picture in the bottom is us at Mount Rushmore because my parents thought, well, what, what could be more American than taking our kids to all the national parks in America, right? So they take us around there every summer. They packed us in the car and they'd ship us off to national parks. And um, I'm the youngest in my family. By the time I went to college, my parents had been able to sort of make it so that they were able to move into a townhouse into one of the sort of really nicer neighborhoods in Houston. And I think the lesson that I learned from watching my parents kind of build their life in this way was this idea that transformation is a core part of what we do as people, right? That constantly as human beings, a core part of the human experience is trying to remake ourselves and remake the world that we live in in order to create the world that we want. And so I think that it's no accident then that a lot of what I study now is movement building, right? Is how organizations kind of transform the world so that they can create the world that they want. Because one thing that makes organizing or movements different from other forms of social change is that at its core, they're fundamentally about transformation. And so what I want to talk to you about today is how I think that relates to the work that you all do. And I think that in some ways, probably some of you are sitting in the audience right now thinking, okay, so we, we're nurses here, right? Like, why are you talking to us about social movements, right? Or why are you talking to us about organizing at all? And so there's sort of three things that I want to talk to you about today, right? One, so why organizing, right? Why should you all think about or even care about organizing at all? Um, second 
if we care about organizing, why do we have to have transformation at the heart of it, right? Why is it that transformation matters for the kind of organizing that we want? And then third, the message that I want to leave you with is that in order to build the kind of transformative power that we want, you need love. And so why love, right? So those are the three things we're going to talk about today, organizing, transformation, and love. All right, you guys with me? All right. So let's start with organizing. Okay, why organizing? Why is organizing related to health? Um, the way that I like to think about it is, um, I think a lot of times when we think about health, we think about the work that happens in our hospitals and our facilities, right? When patients come to us, well, not us, to you, <laughs> right? When, I, when people like me come to see people like you, right, we think of that as health. Um, but the um, Institute of Medicine, you know, they have this definition of health where they sort of think about health as being not just about what happens in the hospital, right, but about what we as a society do to assure the conditions in which all people can be healthy, right? So what are those things that we as a society do to ensure those conditions? Um, this next graph is like a big complicated graph. I don't expect you all to take it all in. But the point that I want to make is that I think a lot of times when we think about health, we think about the stuff over in this circle on the right-hand side, right? It's what happens when people come into the healthcare system to see their GP, to go to, their, to, go to the hospital, to sort of get care for the things that they need. Right? But what I want to sort of talk about is what happens here in the circle on the left that puts people in the position where all of a sudden they're part of that vulnerable, position, that vulnerable population that needs health care. Right? Especially when we're thinking about um, diverse populations, populations that may not have the same kind of resources that other people have. Right? What are the forces that puts them, put them in the position where they become vulnerable and in need of health care? And so um, some of the work from the Centers for Disease Control, a lot of what they talk about is this idea that at the core of this question of how people get in the position of being in that vulnerable position, right, where they need to sort of access the services of healthcare providers, is this question of what's going on in the larger society, right? What is the extent to which these populations um, are developing the kind of leaders and the institutions and the sort of self-governance that enables them to sort of take charge of their own lives. And so if we think about it that way then, health is not just about what we do in the doctor's office, right? Health is about the way that our living conditions sort of influence what it is that, that, um, that makes, makes us healthy or not. But at the intersection of that is this question of whether or not people feel like they have the capacity to act. Right? A core part of health is about whether or not I feel like I have the capacity to act, the agency to be able to take charge of my own life, to sort of um, to build the life that I want. And that agency, that capacity to act, that's at the core of what organizing is. Right? That's at the core of what a movement is. Because organizing, in a lot of ways, is essentially it's a set of practices Right, that are designed to create structures or containers through which people can develop their own capacity to act. Right? So that a lot of us, in the ways that we live in our lives, right, or the structures that exist in our society, we aren't given the opportunity to develop that sense of agency. Right? What is agency? Martin Luther King famously defined agency as the ability to achieve purpose. Right? I have agency when I feel like I can achieve my purpose. A core part of that purpose is probably ensuring the health of myself and my family. Right? And people who don't have that agency, they're not able um, to achieve the kind of health that we want. And what organizing does essentially is it helps them develop that capacity to act. So how does that work? Um, 
So the way that the organizing works at the core of it is this idea about transformation, right? And so second thing I want to talk to you about, right, the first thing was why we need to focus on organizing, right? Well, we need to focus on organizing because if we care at all about health, right, if we care at all about the health of the people, we have to care about whether or not they have that capacity to act, right? And so organizing helps them develop that capacity to act. Second question is, if we're trying to develop that capacity to act among people, why do we need transformation? The reason why we need transformation is because when we think about the toughest problems that we have in health, right, the vulnerable populations that we see, um, deprivation and disease, all these kind of things, a lot of those problems at the core are fundamentally problems of what I think of as problems of power, right? And what does that mean? Sometimes when we use the word power, people think of all sorts of things. They think about politics, they think about conflict, they think about things that are um, really conflictual, right? But what, when I'm saying we have problems of power, what it means fundamentally is that people who are, um, the people who need the change the most, right, who need change in the world the most, they don't have the capacity to make that change. They don't have the authority to make that change, right? So who are the vulnerable populations that we're trying to, trying to whose needs we're trying to meet? Those people, they don't have the capacity or the resources to make the change that they need to create the world that they want, right? That's what I think of as a problem of power. And our toughest problems in health, I would say, are not problems because they're an accident, right? It's no accident that certain kinds of people find it harder to achieve health outcomes than other kinds of people, right? They're, pro they're problems because we have certain systems and structures in our society that make it so. And so what organizing does, essentially, is organizing is about changing our, the way that resources are used so that people who need the change they most acquire the resources they need to make the change that they want. Right? So building a movement for health right, is fundamentally about transforming the resources that people have so that they're able to acquire the resources they need to make the change that they want. Right? And at the core of that is this process of transformation. Right? So people who feel like they don't have that capacity to act need to develop that capacity to act. And that's fundamentally what organizers do, is help people develop that sense of agency. Now, a lot of times when I talk to people, they say, well, that's all fine and good, right? That what we're going to do is try to transform people so they develop that sense of agency. But that's a really hard thing to do. Right? And not only is it a really hard thing to do, I don't think it actually works. Right? And so I just want to tell you a story about other kind of movements and the way in which they were able to sort of develop that capacity to act. So um, you cannot see that slide at all. But um, you know, in the United States, there's a, um, one of the more powerful movements in the United States, the movement, uh, the reproductive rights movement for pro-life. It's a conservative political movement. Okay? And there's a really interesting study about that conservative movement um, written by a sociologist named Ziad Munson. And what he was doing is he was trying to understand people who became leaders and activists in this movement, right? How is it that these people kind of became the people who lead groups in their community, who organize their neighbors, who lead groups in their churches to sort of lead this movement for social change? And he wanted to understand how it happened. Now, if I were to ask you, well, what kind of people do you think joined the pro-life movement? Right? What kind of people do you think are going to join a movement for health? What kind of people do you think are going to join a movement for workers' rights? Right? Generally, what we think about are people who already agree with us. Well, the kind of people who join a movement for workers' rights are people who support workers' rights. Right? What kind of people join a movement for pro-life issues? Right? People who are pro-life. 
One of the most interesting things that Munson found when he did his study is that of the people who were leaders on the very front lines of the pro-life movement, half of them, 47% of them, when they first joined the movement, they were either pro-choice or indifferent to issues of abortion, right? So what that meant was they didn't even agree with the issue agenda of the movement when they first got involved in the movement. Right? And so the question is, so some of you are shaking your head, right? And the question you're probably asking is, well, why do they join? <laughs> right? Like, why would I go join a movement that I don't even agree with, right? And so what he finds is that the reason why people join this movement, it wasn't because they agree with the issue, right? It was because they had just moved to a new town and they were looking for a new social community and they got invited to a meeting in their, in their neighborhood, right? It was because a friend had asked them to come to this meeting and they just felt bad saying no. Right? It was because they, um, it was a, it was, a, it was a, you know, they, someone had just lost their job and they had more free time, or someone had just retired and they had more free time and they wanted to get involved in something new, right? And so what happened was people joined the movement for all sorts of biographical, social, and personal reasons, right? But then they showed up and something happened at that first meeting that made them want to come back. Right? And so what happened was that over time, by getting involved with these groups in their communities, these people, not only did they change sort of what they believed, they began to change their sense of what they must do because of what they believed. Right? So it's not just about sort of changing people's minds on an issue, it was about helping people develop their capacity so they began to want to, be, to lead groups in their community, to attend marches and rallies, to do all the work of building this movement. Right? And so what was interesting, though, about a lot about what um, people who study this kind of stuff find, though, is that the source of this kind of transformation, right, a lot of this in the United States, when we think about the pro-life movement, it happens through churches, and a lot of people think, well, that's because you have these pastors and these clergy at the front of the church who are preaching about pro-life issues, who are preaching about the theology behind it, and like, we don't have that in the union movement, right? Like, we can't have a pastor who's going to preach about certain kind of things, right? But the, the, what it turns out was that the things that were most pivotal in transforming people, it wasn't at all the people at the front of the stage, right? It wasn't people who were standing behind the pulpit or anything like that. Instead, what it was was what people call captains of the culture war, right? It was people who led the Bible groups in their communities, right? People who organized the bake sale after church. It was people who organized all these events that modeled for the, people that they, for the people that they interacted with, what it meant to be a leader in their community, right? And modeling that turns out to be the most powerful way in which people begin to develop the transformative capacities, right, that allow them to build the power that they want. And so, in some ways, the message that I want to leave you guys with is that as nurses, right, and as leaders in this union and in this movement, you guys are the ones who have the most capacity to be able to sort of create these spaces for transformation. Because people come to you all the time, right, in the same way that people came into the movement, in the pro-life movement that we are just talking about, right? They don't come to you because they're looking for some kind of political agenda. They come because they need to see their GP. They come because they have all these other issues that come to them. But in the same way that the pro-life movement turned their churches into these spaces for transformation, our hospitals and our facilities can also become these, these spaces for transformation. And if we don't take advantage of that opportunity that we have, then essentially what we're doing is we're leaving power on the table. 
right? And empower is that capacity to act, right? Not only for the sort of people that we're trying to organize, but for our organizations and our groups and our, um, the unions that we have in our community. If we're not making our hospitals and our facilities a space for transformation, then we're not sort of taking advantage of the power that we have. And so the third thing then that I want to leave you with is, so what does love have to do with any of this, right? If we want to create, use organizing as a way of improving health for everybody, right? And we believe in the need to sort of have transformation as a part of building that, that power that we need. Third question is, why do we need love, right? So let me leave you with sort of one story, um, a personal story, to sort of answer that question. So on the map up here is um, a map of Korea. And there's a town in the middle called Kaesung. Kaesung is right on the border of North and South Korea, right? And it turns out it's a really, really small town um, that has a lot of meaning in our family. It has a lot of meaning for a couple of reasons, right? First, it was a town where the peace negotiations to end the Korean War originally began, right? And those negotiations fell apart, and they eventually had to move, move them to Pyongyang, which is where they completed the peace negotiations. But the second reason why it matters a lot is that that was a town where my grandfather saw his mother for the last time. Because he saw his mother for the last time when he was fleeing south during the war, what he didn't know was that the country was going to be split in half and he never be able to see his mother again. So that town has a lot of meaning in our family because what it reminds us is this idea that peace is a struggle, right? It's not something that comes easy, it's something that we have to work for. And it turned out to be really meaningful because in, um, 2010, my husband and I had a baby, and that baby died at birth, right? He was a full-term baby. I carried him for me for 40 weeks, and, right, and during delivery, for reasons that doctors still don't understand, that baby died right at birth. And my husband and I, we named that baby Kason, right? Because we wanted him to remind us of the ways in which peace is a struggle. Now, why am I telling you guys that story? Well, in that moment, when the doctor told me, right, when I was in the hospital, the doctor told me, and he said those four words, right? Your baby has died. Right? How many of you have had to say that to somebody, right? Your baby has died, right? When he told me that, I felt like I fell into a black hole. I didn't think I'd ever come out of it again, right? And I had built my career at that point in studying agency, right? And studying sort of the capacity of people to sort of find their way to act. And at that moment, I felt like I was falling into a hole that I wouldn't be able to come out of, okay? Now, there are a couple things that brought me out of that hole. The first thing is there was a nurse. Her name was Maureen Walsh, right? And she wasn't the nurse who was um, providing care when we lost our baby, but she was a nurse who came on in the next shift. And she was the first person who made me feel like I was gonna be able to find my way out of this darkness, right? Because she had lost a baby herself when she was uh, many, many, many years ago, and she just sat there and she helped us honor that baby, right? And she helped me transform myself, right? She helped me figure out a way to sort of carve that way um, out of that hole that I was in, right? But the second thing that I learned right, was much more power, was, was equally as powerful than that. Um, 16 months after we lost our baby in 2010, my husband and I welcomed our third child into that world, um, Jamin. He was born in August of 2011, right, and what I, what I realized was that in finding our way out of that darkness, right, what I realized was that I could love someone that I had never met, right? I have no idea what kind of person Kaysen would have been. I never heard his voice. Right? I, have no, I never heard him laugh. I have no idea what he would have been like, yet I loved him completely and unequivocally just because he existed. 
right? And I think that was a really powerful lesson for me to learn because what I learned was the ways in which that love is, if I can love someone I've never met, I can love someone who I have to transform. Because I think that a lot of times what people sort of see as being impossible about this task of building that kind of transformative power is the ability to sort of reach out to and engage with people that we disagree with. Right, that ability to sort of reach out to and engage with people who don't care about what we're doing. Right? But at the core of that, really, of that transformation has to be this ability to sort of love people that we don't necessarily know. Now, the sound that you hear in the background, right, that sound is the heartbeat of our son, Jamin. Right? And my very talented cousin named Dan Green, who also makes guitars, in case any of you are interested in a guitar, <laughs> he, um, he took, he took our son's, he took Jamin's heartbeat and he put it to music, right? And I invite you to take just sort of a few minutes, a few seconds right now to just listen to that sound. Right? Now I carry this sound with me on my phone, right? Our phones are these amazing things. I can carry my children's heartbeat with me, right? And the reason why I carry that with me is because that, is there anything that's more precious to our humanity than the sound of the beating of a child's heart, right? And everyone has the heart, same heart that beats within it. And the message that I want to leave you with is that if we're ever going to build the kind of movements to change the world that we need, we have to bring, leave at the core, right, the idea that we're all be, we all have the same heart that's beating within us, right? We all have to be able to sort of use that love as a way of kind of creating the transformative power that builds the movements and the organizations and the containers that create the space for people to realize their capacity to act. And that ultimately is what organizing is about. And that ultimately is why I think that nurses, you know, health professionals, people like you that sort of see all kinds of people coming into their hospitals and facilities, that's where this is gonna begin. And so I'll leave you with that for now. Thank you. Thank you.